Today's sermon could be summarized in two words, already foreshadowed by Pete in his introduction today. Movement and trouble. So first, movement, with just a passing glance at trouble, because trouble is part of the movement. Mark is our new gospel for the year, so we're going to be hanging out with Mark for the next several months. And Jesus, as Pete has already indicated, is on the move. Already in just the first chapter of Mark, he's appeared in Galilee, walking along the sea. He's gone to Capernaum. He's gone off to a remote place in the desert to pray. He has moved on to neighboring villages, despite the locals looking for him. He's had news of him spread so that he could no longer enter a town openly. Instead, staying again in the remote places in the desert. But people find him there and then come to him from all directions. And that's just the first chapter. In just the first two verses of the second chapter, we learn that Jesus returns to Capernaum. And when word spreads that he has come home, people gathered in such great numbers that there was no longer any room for them, even around the door. Movement. Mark is our gospel, and Jesus is on the move. It will soon become evident as we continue our journey through Mark, our journey with Jesus through Mark, that there is a cyclical pattern to Jesus' movement. You start to be able to notice and anticipate because there's such a rhythm and a pattern to the movement. Simply stated, Jesus comes from the margins or the outskirts of a place, goes into a city or a town or a village or a populated center, stirs up some sort of trouble, finds trouble, gets into trouble, and then retreats, withdraws to a more deserted place. And then it goes around and around, enters again from the margins into a populated center, somehow finds trouble, and retreats. So I've been thinking about this movement. Probably going to do that with my hands a lot today. I've been thinking about this movement as a model for our own lives of discipleship in our own attempts to live in the Jesus way, to follow the Jesus path. Movement toward the powers or the powerful centers, engagement and action and some kind of trouble. That's my trouble, I guess. Jazz fingers, trouble. And then withdrawal, retreat, prayer, renewal, rest, to be ready for a movement toward the powers again. I want to share a piece of our Mennonite history this morning um, that is related to this sort of movement that's going to be so familiar as we uh, continue to journey through with Jesus through Mark. And it's from a book that I've already brought up several times for those of you who've been around, um, and that is Rosemary Freeney Harding's memoir titled Remnants, a memoir of spirit, activism, and mothering. This is Rosemary. She is no longer living. She died while I was in Isla. Um, 2003, maybe, or four. 
Anyway, I'm going to begin with this piece of our Mennonite history, first in her daughter's words, Rachel Elizabeth Harding. And Rachel writes this. My parents met in 1959. They were among the few African Americans in the Mennonite church of that era. Both were eloquent and perceptive public speakers who shared an interest in how the Mennonite witness of reconciliation and peacemaking could contribute to the civil rights struggles and what insights those struggles could offer back to the Mennonite church. Shortly after their marriage in 1960, with support from the Mennonite Central Committee, my mother and father moved to Georgia as representatives of their denomination to the movement and established Mennonite House, where a number of us have been, and at least one of us has lived, right? Jennifer, you lived at Mennonite House in Atlanta for a time? Well, it wasn't specifically that address. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, nice. So they established Mennonite House in Atlanta, Georgia, an interracial voluntary service unit, community gathering place, and retreat space for activists and Peace Church volunteers. It was the first of its kind in the region. And now I'm going to jump ahead and and read just a little bit more, this time in Rosemary's uh, voice. So this is Rosemary herself sharing about her experience. One of my first tasks as a young organizer in the Southern Freedom Movement, I can't help the footnote. Rosemary Rosemary is the spouse of Vincent Harding, who was one of my professors at Iliff School of Theology. He is also no longer with us. Um, But I don't think I ever heard him refer to it as the Civil Rights Movement. So what we commonly refer to as the Civil Rights Movement was always the Black-led Southern Freedom Movement, which is much more precise. (laughs) So uh, you can hear that here in Rosemary as well. One of my first tasks as a young organizer in the Southern Freedom Movement was developing an interracial social service project and community center called Mennonite House in Atlanta, Georgia in the early 1960s. The Mennonite Central Committee sponsored Vincent and me to be full-time witnesses and participants to the freedom movement. Do you hear that exact echo from our peace lamp language where we are both witnesses to and participants in God's vision for a just peace for all creation? So here she is saying, They were full-time witnesses and participants in the movement. In addition to our work of placing volunteers with various movement organizations, training young activists, and coordinating early efforts at interracial dialogue and reconciliation, Mennonite House became an important place of retreat for many who were struggling and sacrificing so much to transform the South and the nation. Sometimes movement people would call us from the bus station and Vincent would drive over and pick them up and they'd stay for a few days or a few weeks because they needed a place to get some rest. Because of my mother's example, so now Rosemary is talking about her mother, I understood very clearly how important it was to have spaces of refuge in the midst of struggle, spaces of joy and laughter, good food, and kind words. In fact, this kind of compassionate care is a transformative force in itself. As the Cape Breton novelist Alastair MacLeod writes, we are all better 
when we're loved. Rosemary goes on to reflect um, painfully about those years and how many black folks would arrive at Mennonite House in Atlanta scarred in body and in spirit, having been battered by police and other white folks, sometimes having survived assault and certainly having survived the terror of white supremacy all around them. As an example, Fannie Lou Hamer, which many of you have certainly heard of, came after she was brutally attacked in Mississippi. Badly bruised and swollen, she was afraid to go home, Harding reflects, worried that her husband might put himself in danger if he saw her condition. She and many others found refuge at Mennonite House. Movement toward the powers, engagement and action, trouble, withdrawal and retreat and rest and renewal, and sometimes much needed recovery and healing, especially especially when those powers that were being confronted were determined, are determined not to give up their power, and are willing to use violence of many kinds to protect their power. How might this sort of Jesus movement continue to serve as a model for our own lives of discipleship? It's a movement from the margins to the center and out to the margins again. That, that framing of margin, center, margins, And the example of the interracial community at Mennonite House in Atlanta, very explicitly led by black folks, takes my imagination and it just, it, well, it just tickles. It tickles my imagination. That's what I'm going to say. What if, I wonder, our commitment to being a people of radical hospitality something that we've already named and claimed for ourselves here at Seattle Mennonite Church. And our growing sense of call to be involved in movements for racial equity, to do that formation work on ourselves and on the ministries that we're engaging in the world. And, here's another piece, that Markin example of the discipleship movement in the Jesus way What if all that stuff got stewed up and led to us somehow hosting a space of retreat for activists? Hmm. That tickles my imagination. In the spirit of Mennonite House. And very explicitly for activists who are indigenous or black or other persons of color who are leading their own liberation movements, what might it mean to intentionally fall in line behind the capable leadership of others and bring our whole selves and our many resources into the task of coming alongside and preparing that place for rest and renewal? So following the movement pattern, but, you know, cleaning toilets for the movement. What if that's part of my call, I wonder? Amen. In other words, what if we weren't always on the leading edge or thought of ourselves as the leaders, 
but we're all in. And this is not to sit back, that's not what I'm saying, but we're all in with our bodies and our money and our space and our hospitality in supporting the strong, capable, genius leadership of those who are emerging from today's margins. It tickles my imagination. So that's the movement in the sermon. And now a little more on that trouble. In our long section from Mark chapter 2 this morning, the particular flavor of trouble that Jesus causes, and in this case he's, he's pretty uh, directly inciting this trouble. He knows what he's doing. He's eyes wide open what he's doing. And what he's doing is a disruption to the debt code. The friends who bring their friend who is paralyzed and then cut a hole in the roof, sorry homeowner, um, and lower their friend, uh, they use their very creative and even destructive imaginations to get their friend in front of Jesus. And Jesus, when encountered with this person, first forgives his sins or debts. Oh, he knows what he's doing. The religious leaders, they're the ones that have been in the business of meeting out those debts and letting folks what they needed to do in order to pay off their debts and get out of spiritual indebtedness. So that is a direct threat to the power of the religious leaders, the authority that they have taken on themselves. They've been the one to determine and proclaim the people's indebtedness to God and to others. And when Jesus declares that man's debts forgiven, they're incensed. How dare he take away their authority to be the one to say when he's, his debts are forgiven? And that action on the part of Jesus is more threatening to them than the physical healing that follows. And I think that's why Jesus leads with it. And Jesus' miraculous healings throughout Mark, and we're going to keep con- confronting this as we continue to journey with Jesus in Mark. So oftentimes that trouble is related to these healing stories. Jesus' healing stories in Mark are primarily about the restoration of social and religious wholeness. So Jesus doesn't just make a leg work better. But he restores a person to wholeness in the community. Illness in Jesus' time was bigger than, um, often bigger than just a disease that was in an individual's body. Illness often led to uncleanness, impurity, um, casting out of the community. It had a social and a religious impact and isolated folks outside the fold. And religious leaders declared certain people outside of the community's righteousness. And Jesus keeps bringing those folks back into the fold. So that's what we're going to see in Mark, in that trouble section. Keeps bringing folks back into the fold, blowing up their sense of order and their self-proclaimed authority within that order. Jesus is always seeking to restore the social and religious wholeness that is denied to the sick and the impure, those who have been cast out. (sighs) Which brings me to Jesus' metaphors of old and new. Try to make this quick. 
new patch on an old cloak, or new wine in old wineskins. And what I always find most fascinating about these two metaphors of old and new is that in both cases, Jesus is concerned with both the old and the new. It's sort of strange. If the cloak is old, why not just toss it? If the new patch isn't going to help it out, why not just get rid of it? But as Mark records it, if you try to patch an old cloak with a new patch, they will pull away from one another, and the tear in the old cloak will be made worse. Why is he concerned about the tear in the old cloak getting worse if he's just planning to trash it anyway? Likewise, if you try to fill old wineskins with new wine, both are lost, Jesus says. In both cases, Jesus indicates this concern for the future of both old and new. And so these metaphors aren't as simple as the old is bad and the new is good, even though the world feels sort of easier when it's that black and white. The sort of trouble that Jesus cyclically brings to the centers of power It's not just a new patch for an old cloak. So the Jesus way is a whole new way. It's disrupting these orders and structures that have been. And those orders and structures that have been, this is where it gets confusing for me. It's easy to cast the stones way back there in Mark's story and to say, oh, those religious leaders were terrible. And it's harder to see the structures that we are part of, that we have been part of building, that we have been complicit in, that all kinds of things. Sometimes what we have built, or what we have inherited, or what we've been complicit in, is bad. Sometimes it's oppressive. Sometimes it is harmful. Sometimes it needs to be leveled. And sometimes it's just old. Sometimes it just has a tear in it that we don't really want or need to get worse. The world changes. Our understandings change. We face new challenges. We tickle our imaginations. We're being transformed in learning who we are and how we're being called into God's liberating movement in the world. Sometimes something that we've built was fine in its time was even good and still needs to go to allow an entirely new, different way to emerge. And like I said, sometimes the way we've been doing things needs to be completely upended. We can't just throw a patch on oppressive structures, tweak them slightly, and declare them better. Sometimes they've got to be completely dismantled before what is new can emerge or can be built. So that's our that's part of our task is discernment. Is what is just old and what needs to be leveled. And always, how are we being tickled to the new thing that God is doing for liberation in this world? Because our Mark reading, if nothing else, shows us that this is how the inbreaking of the Jesus way works. This is how God's liberation works. It just makes us look toward the new and release the old. That's what I see in Mark chapter 2. And as I and as we move ahead into a new season of our life together in the coming year, 
I am carrying with me from this start of the journey in Mark, I'm carrying with me the image of that movement, that movement from the margins to the centers, stirring up trouble and retreat in order to re-engage trouble. I'm thinking of that movement, and I'm thinking of the nature of that trouble, that new way that disrupts what has been. Thanks be to God, because <laughs> what has been? Ugh. <sighs> may we be open, friends, in this new season. May we be open to having our imaginations tickled, and perhaps even blown wide open, as we keep discerning our place, our path on the Jesus way. May it be so.